Well, we're in our series. We're still dealing with that issue of secrets of successful living and being concerned for others is what we want to start talking about tonight. We'll spend a couple of weeks in this, I would imagine, but tonight we want to kick that off. And so I want you to take your Bible, turn over to the book of Matthew. It's kind of appropriate as we prepare to go into our missions conference here in the near future. Uh, This is a good topic to kind of get things moving along. Being concerned for others, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to begin in verse 34. We're just going to read through verse 36. Matthew chapter 14, verse 34. It says, And when they were gone over, they came into the land of the Gennesaret. I practiced that too. Oh man, see, look at that. Gennesaret. There we go. I'll say it that way, okay? And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. I don't know about you, but that's pretty exciting. That's pretty exciting. Can you imagine if you had uh, terminal cancer tonight and literally all you had to do is come up and touch this suit jacket somehow and you'd be healed like that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you had some other kind of disease or some other issue and all you needed to do was, as the pastor walked by, just preacher, preacher, and you just had to touch the hem of this coat. Wouldn't that be something? i got to believe that there would be a lot of people that would be coming to Community Baptist Temple tonight. i got to believe that they would be packed beyond, beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. i got to believe they'd be lined up outside of the doors of this place, even into the parking lot. I, I bet you, I bet you that I couldn't even get in my car without people swarming me i got to believe that as I drove on out of the parking lot, there would be people trying to follow me in their vehicles or run after me and try to get me to stop. There would be those who would probably lay in the road and stop my car so that they, they would force me to get out. It's like, hey, you got to get out of the way. Let me just touch the hem of your suit jacket. Let me just touch it. i got to believe that. I was going to say this, and I don't mean to be mean or nasty, but I'm going to tell you something. There aren't any healers today. Come on now. I mean, common sense says if somebody could actually heal people, that man wouldn't be able to sleep. He wouldn't have any time to sleep. I mean, he could actually do what, what people claim they can do. And we, we don't need to fall prey of that. We don't need to be deceived into believing those things. But we do have a Heavenly Father who can heal all things and meet all needs. And he may not meet him the way we'd like to, but he can, and he does in so many cases. And whether we understand it or not, he is still good. But in this particular case, we see here a, a, a number of people that are coming to the, to the master, and they just need to touch the hem of his garment. And the Bible tells us in doing so, they're made perfectly whole. Wow. You know, no Christian can really live a successful Christian life who doesn't really constantly and continually and systematically seek to share the love of Christ with others. That's just a reality. I mean, if we don't have a heartbeat for other people, if the world simply revolves around us, 
then we really aren't very Christ-like, are we? And if we want to be a successful Christian, then we need to be as much like Christ as possible, which means we ought to have a concern and a love for other people. Now again, sometimes that love waxes and wanes if it's our love. If it's me that has to love people, then I promise you this, I'm going to have a hard time doing it from time to time. But it's not my love that I have to love them with, it's His love that I have to love them with. It's Christ in me and His love in me that enables me to love and When I don't love the way I ought to, it's because I'm not allowing Him and His love to be manifest in and through my life. We need a burden for people. We need a burden for their souls and their eternal destinations. There are so many people today that are still without Christ. We see the condition of mankind and we consider the condition and we notice in Luke 19.10 the Bible says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We know that mankind as a whole is lost. We know that. But not only lost, but they are condemned already, the Bible says. In John 3.18 the Bible says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Interestingly enough, we stop often and we read that verse and we fail to understand the real conclusion of the matter. It's not that they're condemned already because they drink alcohol. Not because they're condemned already because they take drugs. Not that they're condemned already because they're immoral. That's not the issue. The fact is, is that they are condemned already because they do not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that's the reality of it. There is no doubt, there is no doubt that sin wreaks havoc in a life. That there are consequences for sin in our lives. But that is not what people need saved from. What they need saved from is their sin that separates them from God. And the fact is, is that they are condemned already simply because they do not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that name is none other than Jesus Christ. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're lost. They're condemned already. And because they are condemned already, sadly, the wrath of God abides on them. The Bible says in John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Notice again, He that believeth not the Son. That kind of coincides with John 3, 18, when the Bible says, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We tie those verses together and we learn that because of their sin, because they failed to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they are condemned already and they have the wrath of God abiding on them. That's the real problem and that's the major issue that we face with the lost and dying world. That's what's the problem with, with our family members that are lost and our friends and others, co-acquaintances that we know. It's not just that their lifestyle does not align itself with the Word of God. It's that they themselves do not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Because of that. So watch, here's the truth. I can go around talking to people all day long about how they need to clean up their life. I can tell a man, I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to get rid of those cigarettes. You need to stop drinking alcohol. You need to stop messing around and doing things that you know are immoral and unrighteous. You know, they can turn over all kind of new leaves. 
so to speak. And it doesn't in one way fix their real problem. I stopped drinking. I stopped doing this and I stopped doing that and I stopped going here and stopped going there. Doesn't matter. They're still condemned already. They have the wrath of God abiding on them. They're going to die and go to a hell. I wonder, do we feel any real concern for the lost? I mean, we have any passion for souls. Are we burdened as we think about loved ones and friends and family members and even thousands of others who are without Christ? How long is it that someone has to be in our company? How long do they have to be around us before, with God's help, we tell them about the Jesus Christ? Listen, I, I, I believe it's important that we try to establish relationships with the lost. We really do. We need to work at that. And I'm not talking about relationships that lead me into a bar and hanging out and drinking with them. I'm talking about relationships that uh, enable me to have a contact with them and have some kind of credibility with them. A, a, a contact with them in a sense and some kind of interacting with them that says to them, they know a little bit about me in the sense that they know I'm real and genuine. I get that. But how long does that take? I mean, I've read in books that it takes six months. I've read in books that it takes a year. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think I need six months to figure out whether you're real or not. And I can tell you this much. It doesn't matter how much you show them how good you are. Your goodness will never get them out of hell if they die before you tell them about Jesus. May it never be said of our unconverted loved ones and friends that they could say as David did in Psalm chapter 142, verse 4, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. It'd be sad one day to stand before the great white throne judgment. And of course, we won't stand there, but the lost will. And to be standing there observing and watching and to hear them say, but no man cared for my soul. No man cared for my soul. Can you imagine being the one that spent a lifetime with them as husband or wife, never witnessed to them? Can you imagine our children standing at that throne and saying, No man cared for my soul. A grandchild. I can't even fathom that, can you? I hope not. But sadly enough, there will be people, friends, family, and loved ones that will end up in a place called hell who literally lived their lives around believers and believers did not share the truth. They may have been bold enough to tell them that they need a change of life because that will make their life better. But it's not just their present life, it is their eternal life that matters most. Look at our text again in Matthew chapter 14, but this time verse 35 and 36. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him. Here they come across the, that, that, that uh, uh, lake and in the midst of that, that there's a storm. And of course we know that Jesus comes walking on the water and Peter's like, hey, let me join you. And he says, yeah, come on out. Man, I mean to tell you, he takes a few steps out there, and he's doing pretty good. I mean, he's doing a little 
jig on the, on the sea, you know. Pretty excited about what's taking place right now, you know. All of a sudden he gets looking around. And he realizes, wow, this is serious business. I mean, there's wind, there's waves. There's, this is a, this is, I mean, this is live. This is happening. And I'm going to tell you what, all of a sudden he begins to sink. And what's he do? He cries out and says, Lord, save me. I don't know about you, but isn't that the place that you had to get to before you finally came to him? And that's exactly where every person has to get. And so then the next time we see, we, we come to our passage here, we've crossed over that sea now, and here we have the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have his, his uh, disciples, and all of a sudden it says, and when the men of that place, the place where they had landed, that, that Gennesaret, here they are now in that place, and it says, and when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment as many as touched were made perfectly whole. So here we have a description of the many people around us. The many people around us um, for whose salvation that we need to be deeply concerned about. And if we ask the question, what is the real need of the lost? And how does this portion of scripture answer it? I think the passage gives us like three things. And, and again, it could give us more, I'm sure. But I think it gives us three things about people of that particular day, which are still true about people now. And so I want to share just three simple thoughts as we move along. And I know we have short time, limited time, but we'll move quickly. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Bless us tonight. May you meet our needs. Help us to see, Father, uh, this, this great need. Father, people are no different then than they are now. We're no different now than they were then. Father, we need you, Lord Jesus. We need your presence. We need your power. We need your anointing. We need your salvation. Bless us now and may you encourage us in the word of God and may our heart and our desire for souls be increased so that less end up in a place called the lake of fire. We love you. We need you. In Christ's name, amen. First, from the passage, we note that they were diseased. Again, same thing, people then, people now. People now, people then. It doesn't really matter, but they were diseased back then, verse 35. You'll notice in that particular passage, it says, He brought unto him all that were diseased. They brought unto him all that were diseased. They were diseased. Well, you know, a number of people today may be religious, they may be respectable. They may even be living morally good lives, if you will, so to speak. Upright lives. That's fine. But every unsaved soul is gripped by the disease of sin. That's all there is to it. Over in the book of Luke, chapter 5, verse 12, the Bible says, And it came to pass, when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord... If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. I want you to know the Lord can make him clean and did make him clean. The fact is, though, is that leprosy was a picture of sin and uncleanness. Look, if you would, over in Leviticus chapter 13. Notice how this leper is describing, is described. Le Leviticus chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. 
When you see leprosy in the Bible, it is a reflection or it's a picture representing a representation of sin, the sinner. We got a problem. Notice why that's the case. It's pretty clear in Leviticus chapter 13. It says, verse 44, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall pronounce him utterly unclean. Well, I'll tell you what, you're going to take the guesswork out of this, right? Oh, he's unclean, but is he really unclean? Is he like unclean 70%, 80, 90? Well, you know how we are today in the world in which we live. We're quick to try to come up to, with certain degrees. Oh, he's, he's, he's not, it's not like he's, a, he's not really a, a good man, but he's not a bad man. Well, what is he? I mean, he's not, okay, so he didn't do, okay, he did something that was wrong, but that doesn't make him a bad person. Y- you know how we are? I mean, if you only knew him, he's really a good guy. Tell it to the person that he just assaulted. I'm just saying, we have this mentality today where we kind of, we, we, we don't see things in just, as we used to say, black and white. Things aren't just right or wrong. There's, as we would say, a lot of gray. And yet here in this passage, he says, now I'm going to be clear. He says, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall pronounce him utterly unclean. <laughs> There's no question here. Utterly. I mean, he's just over. It's, there's no question about it here. His plague is in his head. And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip and shall cry, Unclean! 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 Can you imagine living your life and to go through life in public saying, Unclean! Unclean! unclean. Can you imagine that? Talk about embarrassing. Boy, the picture of the sinner is one that is extremely grotesque, isn't it? Leprosy. A leprous, a leprous sore. A putrid sore. This is the picture, the image of the unbeliever today in the sight of a holy God. And they are utterly unclean. No matter how good they appear. No matter how they dress. No matter how much money they make. No matter how nice a car they drive. No matter how good a family man or woman they are. These are things that we have to keep in mind. If we could see people the way God sees them. If we could view people the way he did. Remember that one time when he, he fixed or he he. He healed that man's eyes, but he healed them a little too good. And the man said, I see men as trees walking about. He did. He saw men as trees. Oh, wow, Jesus must have messed up. No, he did too good a job because he saw them the way God sees them. I don't have time to go into all that, but you look at Psalm chapter 1 sometime. And you start to look at how God relates us to trees and stuff and our roots growing deep and so forth. But nonetheless, he then touches him again and bam, he begins to see like he, as a human, sees now. I'm going to tell you what, God sees differently than mankind does. God sees people differently than, than, than you and I do. 
It's when we get a vision of men and women, boys and girls, that the way God sees them, that's when it's going to take uh, and grip our heart. That's when compassion will well up in our souls. That's when things will change. And unless those that are gripped by the disease of sin are cured, their prospects are grim indeed. <laughs> in Romans 6, 23, the Bible says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Of course, this death is defined in Revelation chapter 20. Turn to Revelation 20, verse 11. I mean, you and I are very aware, and many of you have probably come through the soul winning training and things, and you understand that, that death, physical death, is a direct result of sin. You understand that. But not only is physical death a result of sin, but then, of course, this death that we see here. The wages of sin is death. We understand that death is twofold. It's, it's physical, but it's also what? Spiritual. Notice what it says here in Revelation. And I saw a great white throne. Now, when is that white throne going to be seen and when is it actually going to take place? We understand right now that we're in the age of grace, dispensation of grace, it's often referred to. We know that Jesus Christ is, is extending his arms and inviting all to come to him and receive him as Savior and Lord by grace through faith, not of themselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But there's coming a day when Christ is going to receive his, his bride, his church. We call that the rapture. He's going to catch them away. He's going to take them out. And when he does, what do we say? Ultimately, that seven-year tribulation period will kick off at some point. There's no guarantee that it's immediate. There's nothing that says it has to be. But it will be a seven-year period, and it will continue for seven years. While that's taking place in heaven, we said and understand that there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ taking place. Those of us that have received the Lord and accepted him as Savior, we're going to be judged for our works, what sort they were even. But while that's taking place on earth, God is judging Israel and lost mankind here on earth. And there for seven years, he's dealing with them and he's working with Israel once again. And he reestablishes his relationship with them in a very special way. And he, he ultimately prepares so that at the end of that seven years, when he returns in chapter 19 of Revelation, he establishes himself on the throne of David and he rules and reigns for a thousand years. He brings us with him and we rule and reign with him. At the end of that thousand years, we know a battle ensues again. Christ simply speaks once again, and it's done. At this point, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and there is the great white throne judgment. And that's where this lands. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was, was found no place for them, and I, I saw the dead. Small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. I'm not sure if you understand this, but as we read this, we're, we're, we're reading something that God allowed John to write. And early on in the book of John, we notice something interesting about or the book of Revelation. We notice that John, he is, he is caught up. He's caught up. The, the picture is this, it's that it's not just a vision that John, John is seeing of the book of Revelation. He's literally watching it unfold and he's viewing it as it's taking place. And he's seeing it from his perspective. 
That's why when you see things, you know, sometimes people say when they deal with prophecy, they'll say, well, what that really represents is a helicopter. What that really represents is an atomic bomb. What that really, because John's seeing things from his perspective. What we do forget, however, is this. A lot of crazy stuff happened back in Egypt too. And Sodom and Gomorrah somehow went boom. And he didn't need no atomic bomb. So I got to believe that God's capable of doing a lot of the things that John saw and actually saw it exactly like it was. And, he does, they don't, and, and, and we don't need to help God. I say, and, and I believe this with all my heart, that we take every aspect of the word of God literally till you just can't do it anymore. And so now we have John viewing this, and he's literally looking at this. He's watching it unfold before his very eyes. He sees this great white throne, and he sees him that sat on it. He sees that it, it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And he says, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I saw, the, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the seed gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. Here it is now. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. A physical death, one. A spiritual death, eternal separation from God forever in the lake of fire, two. There it is. The definition of this word death is found in Revelation chapter 20. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Hey, I don't know about you, but I don't get the impression that they're dead in the underst- as we understand death. We understand death as we walk by a casket and we see a body that is lifeless. They're dead. That's not what John is seeing. He's talking about death. He's talking about people that are as alive as, as, as alive as you are tonight, as alive as I am right now, being cast into the lake of fire and living there and dealing with that forever and ever and ever and ever. They are dead in the sense that they are spiritually dead, separated from God. When we are born, we are dead to God in a sense. We're not alive unto him yet. Because our spirit is still dead. But when we are regenerated, when we are transformed by the renewing of our, not by the renewing of our mind, but when we are transformed by the precious power of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood of the Lord, let me tell you something. All of a sudden, just like that, that spirit comes alive. You're no longer dead, but you're alive in Christ. These are dead, but they are alive. They are living, but they are dead. And there are a lot of dead men walking about the earth today. A lot of dead women walking around on this earth. And they are dead because their spirits are dead unto God. See, we are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. It's not until we exercise our faith that we become the child of God. Up until then, we are none other than the child of Satan himself. So there are dead men and women walking this earth. And it doesn't matter how they dress it up. It doesn't matter how they array it. All that matters is that they are dead. And unless they meet the master, unless they touch the hem of his garment, unless somehow, supernaturally, they are transformed and changed, 
and made whole, they will forever be doomed and destined for a place called the lake of fire. It says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how you and I were before we met him. We were, as it says here, having no hope and without God. Until we can wrap our minds around the reality that grandma, grandpa, Mom, dad, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, cousin, nephew, niece. Till we can wrap our mind around the fact that they are without hope and without God. Not only in this world, but the next. Until we can separate what they appear to be. Oh, they're so lovely, so full. They have so much going for them. They've got a good education. They got a good job. They got a nice retirement. They got a nice house. They got a wonderful family. They got, they're so kind and benevolent and generous, and they're just so wonderful and so lovely. I'll tell you what, they are the epitome of what a couple ought to be. They're such a sweet couple. They are doomed and they are destined to burn and burn and burn forever in a place called the lake of fire. They are without hope and without God in this world and they will continue to be without God in the next life if we don't do something to bring them to Jesus. We have such short-sightedness that all we can see is what's in front of us. God help us to see what is beyond. To understand that Revelation chapter 20 is not just some story or an analogy or an allegory. It is a reality. When we get a hold of that truth, I don't think it'll be hard to be concerned for people. But until then, we might just remain a little selfish and self-centered. It might still be about us then until we get the right perspective, an eternal perspective. May God help us to have a concern and a love for people because they have no hope and they are without God in this world. And that will be their destiny if we don't go get them and bring them to him. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for just these last few moments. We just thank you for your word. And we just pray that you would help us, Father, just to be 